Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Nabil, Andrew, and I are your hosts today. We're talking about the workflow description language, Whittle. And joining us to discuss Whittle is Dr. Joel Savinsky, the founder and CEO of Theogen Genomics. Dr. Savinsky has leveraged over two decades of experience in systems biology and has taken aim at transforming public health and infectious disease surveillance through an innovative implementation of NGS and bioinformatics technologies. During a three-year tenure at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, he has led several initiatives to build NGS testing and bioinformatics capacity at the state, regional, and national levels. In 2019, Dr. Savinsky left CDPHE and created Theogen Genomics. Dr. Savinsky and his team now work with over 40 public health laboratories nationally and more than two dozen internationally in Africa and Asia, building bioinformatics capacity for public health. And also Dr. Danny Park. He is the group leader for viral computational genomics at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Over the past nine years, he has facilitated the conversion of research-grade viral genomic and metagenomic analysis pipelines to portable, containerized cloud compute workflows that have been in use by collaborating genomics labs in West Africa since 2015. Dr. Park has also co-chaired the infrastructure working group in PHAGE, which is the Public Health Alliance for Genomic Epidemiology, which works to define standards and best practices for compute infrastructure for public health labs globally, and what is required of labs to support modern containerized bioinformatics workflows while maximizing the portability and reusability of these workflows. Thanks, Lee. Congrats. (laughs) That's awesome. So to kick off the conversation, I talked about Whittle in the introductions, which is WDL. So Please tell me, what is Whittle? Whittle is um, short for the Workflow Description Language, or WDL. It's affectionately pronounced Whittle, and it's one of the languages that's commonly used to encapsulate bioinformatics pipelines in a way that's portable. <laughs> it's also worth saying that, you know, the whole Cromwell thing and, you know, some of these things don't translate so well across the pond. I think Whittle translates really well across the pond because uh, oh, actually, and, Andrew just uh, <laughs> Andrew just te- typed to us that Whittle is a term used for P in Ireland. So that was, I think we're off to a great start. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would actually say, you know, uh, it's more for children, you know, will you go for a whittle? There you go. You've learned something new today. I'm trying to think about how to translate this to an analogy, but it's not really working. There's probably a lesson in there somewhere. Anyway, back to actual whittle, you know, the workflow description language. What is it? Right. So the idea is a lot of computational pipelines, especially in the genomic space, consist of gluing together invocations of lots of different tools. You take the data and you run it through this tool and you run it through that tool. And, you know, if you've kind of come to the place where you've learned how to containerize those tools so that they're at least executable in lots of different environments, then the question is, how do you actually describe 
all the other little bits, right? There's there's the um, the file format conversions in between each step. There's kind of, you know, the file here goes from the output of that to the input of this, and and you kind of plug it all together. So Whittle is one of those languages that's meant to help folks describe how to glue it all together. It it starts with the presumption that your tools are already containerized. And given that, how, how do the pieces come together? What are the other bits you have to call around, you know, before and after each step to get it ready for the next step? What's the flow look like? Does it have to break out and come back together? Are there conditions, that type of stuff. And it, it does it in a way that's meant to be cross-portable across a few different execution environments. So that's that's what the workflow description language is. So if somebody gave me a, a Whittle workflow and in it, I don't know, maps reads to the human genome. I could take that Whittle workflow and run it like on my Raspberry Pi or my HPC. Presuming that those are platforms that can run Docker containers and have whatever hardware requirements it, like many of these languages gives you the opportunity to say, oh, you know, some of these steps are memory intensive, you're going to need this much resource or that much CPU, maybe this much disk. So presuming that your place that you're trying to execute it on kind of has uh, those abilities, then yeah, it, that's the idea. Is this something then you can potentially use maybe with like Nextflow, Snakebake, that kind of thing? In a lot of ways, it solves kind of similar problems. For this type of thing, a lot of folks may be familiar with Nextflow or Snakemake, they all come at it slightly differently, in fact. And the other one you haven't mentioned yet is the common workflow language, which is quite popular in certain circles, that's CWL. But uh, a number of these languages were actually kind of independently birthed around the same time, almost a decade ago, trying to solve some similar problems. I think there's a lot of commonalities in what each of them are trying to do. They all have slightly different unique features and how they do it and, and what it's like for a developer or for a user. So Whittle, if, if I'm not wrong, that's the language specification. Mm -hmm. That's not strictly something that will execute the... So there isn't like a program I run called WDL that actually executes right, the, that's exactly the, right. the scripts. Yeah, and in that sense, it's actually um, kind of quite different from NextFlow or SnakeMake, which have both the language specification and the kind of the execution engine all kind of tied together. Whittle is more similar to CWL in that it is a language spec with the idea is multiple different implementations. And the language is thought of pretty orthogonally to the common implementations where you might actually execute those things. So there isn't a thing called Whittle tool or something to, to run it. There are several engines out there that you could use. And that's you know part of what we can talk about in terms of its, its portability. Whittle is actually kind of interesting because actually out of all of these, it's, it's probably the most formally defined as a language spec. You know, you can look up its formal spec on the open Whittle GitHub page. There's a consortium of people who modify the spec, add features to the language and stuff, but it's not built on top of Python or Groovy or anything like that. It's, it's a standalone language that's meant to be parsed. And so who are the main uh, consortium members? A lot of the uh, consortium members for the Open Whittle Consortium, it's a great question. I, I'm not actually deeply involved in that one. I think anyone who has interest and kind of participates by the guidelines can join that one if, 
if I'm not wrong, but the, the most active members tend to be the folks who are invested in the implementation. So that will be people from the Broad Institute who operate Terra and Cromwell. There's the people from DNA Nexus who operate their platform and, and use Whittle a lot. And the folks from CZI who run uh, Mini Whittle. I guess that answers my next question, which is what kind of uh, financial support and backing is behind this? And it sounds like it's quite impressive with so many different large organizations involved. The investment in the consortium around defining the language, it's the people who are invested in in the implementations of it, right? And they have their own reasons to be interested in that and invested in the success of it and making sure that the way that they want to extend the language is something that's consistent and portable with the other folks who are using the same language. So I want to step back and actually ask uh, ask a more generic question. Now that we've sort of explained Whittle very briefly what, it, what it's about, what is the benefit what is the problem Whittle is trying to solve? Like generically, workflow languages are trying to solve might not appear obvious to people, especially when they start looking at the documentation for Whittle. They'll see that this is a very complicated specification of tasks. Why are we going to this level of, of complexity for bioinformatics analysis? Well, on that last note, I'll say that the documentation for Open Whittle is actually kind of targeted towards, you know, the people who maintain the language spec and that type of thing. I tend to go there just as a language reference, but it's you know not actually intended for the users of it per se, more of the folks who implement the, the engines around it. But the, the problem it's trying to solve is inherently one of portability. It was born around the time a lot of different folks were working on kind of the cloud implementations of compute for genomics pipelines. And inherently at that point, once you were lifting things out of everyone's uh, research clusters and kind of institutional set of tailored scripts and things, you know, if you're going to put in the effort to move things to the cloud, you might as well put in the effort to make sure it's done in a way that the next time you move again to something else, you, you don't have to rework all that type of stuff. So a lot of the portability uh, concepts were kind of baked in from the beginning. So I wanted to ask Joel, because uh, Joel, you're a fan of Whittle, right? <laughs> and Absolutely. How, how does, how, what's your take on, on Whittle? How does it, in, how do you interact with it in your work? And why do you see this as something to invest your time in? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. And, and from a kind of public health perspective, especially over the past five or six years, it's been really satisfying watching things get to the point where they are right now. And this isn't necessarily a Whittle specific answer. It's more of a workflow language specific question. And, you know, on your previous podcast, you've chatted with individuals, Kelsey and Aaron and uh, Curtis and Kevin and others, and talk about staff being containers. All along, the goal for bioinformatics and public health is to make things more standardized, reproducible. You know, Danny just talked about portable, you know, scalable and easy to use, kind of those, those five main topics. When I started in public health six years ago, the only standardized bioinformatics we had at the state level was, you know, bionumerics through PulseNet. And as we started expanding to other pathogens or wanting alternative pipelines to some of the enterics for local use, you started seeing bioinformatic, bioinformaticists come into public health. We were doing things kind of the, the old way. I think in Nabil, in a, in a previous episode, you, you talked about the way bioinformatics was done 10 years ago and the way that it's done now. Well, five, six years ago in public health, we were doing things the way bioinformatics was done 10 years ago, every place else. We were doing a lot of custom scripts. We we're using a lot of on-prem resources or just starting to use virtual machines in the cloud. 
And one of the projects I was involved in when I was at Colorado was, it was kind of like a primitive workflow management in containers where we said, okay, and I, and I can remember this too, it had to do with the uh, live set, right? And we want to run live set and live set, sorry, Lee, it, it was a bear to install from scratch on a system and, and definitely suffered from the, it works on my sh machine kind of syndrome. We, we wanted a way for other laboratories to use live set and not have to go through the I'll call it process, the process of installing it themselves. We essentially fired up a virtual machine on Google Cloud and got Lee to install LiveSet on there and then made an image of it. And then we would distribute that image to colleagues to run LiveSet, which essentially for those of the owner, LiveSet was used for enteric surveillance and, and looking at phylogenetics. And this was kind of the beginnings of where public health started to recognize the power of this modularity and portability. And, you know, with the VMs, we had a way of standardizing things. We had a way of making it reproducible and in some way portable in the sense that if you had access to Google Cloud, you could have access to these VMs. But it definitely wasn't that scalable. And it certainly wasn't easy to use because you still had to be a card-carrying bioinformaticist or have extensive training on the command line to successfully run a lot of these things. So where workflow managers come in is they, and, and it's not only workflow managers, it's also the containerization. So where you had a number of public health scientists with Curtis and Kevin and Kelsey and Jake from Minnesota and all that really started contributing to the Staff B uh, Docker repository, which had been discussed on previous podcasts. And once you had this repository, this registry of containerized algorithms, then it really allowed leveraging of workflow managers to not only standardize and make portable and reproducible workflows, but to also make them very scalable and easy to use. So yes, I, I've been a huge fan of Whittle and I know, and, and later we'll get into Terra, which is where I think some of these workflow manager languages really blossom is in that type of context. But yeah, it, it really helped solve those five topics of being able to expand bioinformatics. Can I take a moment to defend myself on live set? <laughs> sure, sure. You have right of apply, Lee. <laughs> I'll just say, I'm going to say you're right. <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to install. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I know anybody that successfully installed it. <laughs> I'm, I'm done with my defense. <laughs> No, I mean, and that was a huge thing, getting live set into a container in the Docker repository. I mean, that was fantastic because then, you know, you, I, I, I think in another episode, someone talked about, you know, having this, I think it was with Robert Petit, you know, having the sysadmin aspect of being a bioinformaticist and, you know, yeah, some people might enjoy that. I never enjoyed it, right? Because it was it was all peripheral to getting work done and asking interesting scientific questions. And so if you can remove that sysadmin aspect of things, which workflow managers do a lot of, then you get to do more of what you enjoy. As I said, all those stupid <laughs> bio-pearl things. Yeah, you got to cut that. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, there was one day on our Slack board, Joel, where, where you said, when are you going to make live set V2? <laughs> And I forgot how the conversation went, but I eventually made a, what did I, I made a, I made a meme with here lies Lee cats never made live set version. Yeah, two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't even live set too. It's like live set. You had to make sure you used version one point, like 1.4 F. Like, yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's sort of an inside joke that with live set, they, they really, they, they've been, 
and this is this is a problem that's never going to go away. A problem slash solution where where um, quality management everything it takes over everything, and you have to version everything. And I thought I fixed it, so it, it's almost like saying like final, final, final on your on your document that you submitted as a manuscript. I had I had patch number one point one. Now it's no, I, I fixed one little thing. Now it's one point one point one, and now it's one point one point four. Oh no, someone found a bug. Let's let's call that version A. And <laughs> I started poking at, at the management system a little bit. And I said, well, here's your version. We finally finished it. Well, and, and that was a great <laughs> time in, in, in public health bioinformatics. And, and that gets back to, you know, the, the origins of Staff B, which have been discussed before and, and Heather Carlton's role in that. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, we jokingly say Heather said, stop bugging us. And no, it wasn't Heather saying stop bugging us. I mean, he Heather is an amazing scientist and always willing to help. I think what she recognized was that there were several bioinformaticists starting to join public health laboratories at the state level, and they didn't know one another, uh, but they knew her and they kept reaching out to her. And she suggested, you know, I, I think it was a while because this had to be back in, wow, around 2017, January, I think. And, and she just suggested, I, th I think on one of my calls to her, she's like, you know, I'm, I'm having a, a number of other bioinformaticists ask me similar questions, you know, you, you guys should meet up and, and chat and talk about things. And I think at the time it was, you know, Kelly Okeson and Kevin Libowit and Sean Wang were like the other three that were asking her lots of questions. And I think our, our kind of official get together was that APHL meeting in 2017, because we had virtually been chatting a lot and then met in person in 2017. But yeah, so, so Heather didn't say stop bugging us. I, th I think she just recognized that, you know, that there's stuff going on. There's unique challenges at the state and you state public health bioinformaticist and staff B should start chatting with one another. We finally got the story. I'm so satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've touched a little bit on Whittle as a language specification that's separate from its implementation and the differences of that with say Nextflow and SnakeMake. But I was wondering, well, what makes both of you really excited about Whittle? Why do you use it or why did you buy into it versus other workflow languages? I can tell you why I ended up there. So one thing I should preface, actually, I, I do work at the Broad Institute in, in the Infectious Disease Program, but and, and Whittle and Terra, which you'll hear about later, also come out of the Broad Institute, but completely different groups. So I have actually kind of no involvement in in its origins or its ongoing development. And also actually, I, I had no particular loyalty to it kind of going in. It's it's kind of a chance or it, it, it turned out that it's the language and the platform that we ended up adopting in our viral group for a number of reasons. But but actually for, for me personally, because a lot of my priorities in, in our research group actually have to do with making sure that the experience that we have in our group computationally is equivalent to a lot of our collaborators and the folks that we work with, that everyone else can kind of do the same things we can do. I actually wasn't necessarily looking to be using something out of the Broad Institute, but you know, the reason we ended up there, I mean, I remember like five, six, seven years ago, I was trying to figure out how to formalize a lot of our pipelines in a way that would be more portable. I remember thinking at the time, I mean, these are the early days for, I mean, many of these languages exist at the time, but in, in more kind of earlier primordial form perhaps, right? And so I wasn't terribly committed to anything back in say 2015. You could kind of tell, oh, there's gonna be something good in a couple of years. I actually feel like at this point, there's many, there's multiple good kind of things that 
you know, back then were still kind of in their early days. But so I didn't really commit too much. But I think it's probably a year or two after that, maybe 2016, 2017. I think what tipped the balance for me, I, I had been partnering a lot with a, a commercial cloud vendor called DNA Nexus in the US. They, they just happen to be one of the, I think maybe one of the oldest commercial genomic cloud compute vendors. They're more used for, you know, kind of big cancer projects and prenatal screening and, and other kind of, you know, that type of stuff. We were working with them since say 2014 to expand compute access to our partners in West Africa. And so actually a lot of our our collaborators were using their, and at that time we were wrapping our pipelines in their kind of proprietary in-house pipeline language. It wasn't easy for us to do. We needed a lot of their hands-on help to do it because it's their own kind of thing. But after Whittle had been around for a year, few years, when we saw DNA Nexus adopting it, actually, as, as their kind of interoperability language, they started writing parsers that would, you know, pipelines in Whittle and, and turn them into something that could run on their platform, mostly by compiling it to their in-house language. Now they have that for CWL and NextFlow as well. But, you know, at, at the time when they came out with for Whittle, I think that's when I realized, oh, this is actually more than just a broad. And oh, this seems to actually have legs kind of in a larger global way. And now it actually looks like it's portable enough to like legitimately really run on more than one place. And so that's around the time I started porting a lot of our viral pipelines to that language because I realized, oh, this is how, well, first of all, it became the primary way we deployed our pipelines on DNA Nexus at first, Terra later, but also even just running stuff on the command line, you know, whenever we need to get quick stuff done in-house as well. So I just had a look there and I see that you've got uh, parsers implemented in Scala, Java, and Python, which is quite a quite an array actually of uh, quite a variety of parsers for the language, which is kind of cool. And I think it shows the success of it. It's not just a one-hit wonder. I'm not involved in that, but you know, a lot of the original parsers, so that the Broad team that works on Terra and its underlying engine called Cromwell, a lot of that stuff's written in Scala. A lot of the CZI stuff, mini Whittle and so forth is written in, in Python, I believe. And once all that whole ecosystem kind of came into place, I, um, for our, just our viral stuff, our CI kind of builds on GitHub and stuff, we just ran everybody's validators and, and, and kind of automated tests just to make sure that like, oh, it'll run on the Scala implementation and it'll run on the Python implementation. And, you know, every once in a while you, you discover some edge cases where something wasn't cross-portable, but actually it's surprising how much out of the box, you know, and that's the thing. I think an informatician, you know, if we get into some of what makes it different, not necessarily like better or worse, but just different. An informatician who works with Whittle and works with Nextflow and works with SnakeMake will realize there's kind of a spectrum of flexibility for the pipeline developer. You know, SnakeMake gives you a lot of power. You can write input rules in pure Python and, and do a lot of stuff like just in the, in the make file, right? They'll find Whittle actually quite limiting. It's a, it's a hard specification of a language. There's a very limited set of things you can do, but in compared to a lot of these other things, you know, you, you can spin a Docker, run anything that you can run inside that Docker and you can plug files together and you're not allowed to kind of make too many assumptions about file paths and things like that, because that's all like non-portable stuff. But in those limitations, it creates more portability. When the developer is forced to assume that you can't like, you know, that the file is going to be a 
accessible in some shared directory or something like that on your NFS mount, there that means that the implementation can abstract away a lot of that backend. You can put it on a cloud bucket or you can put it on your local laptop and it'll all run the same. So in a way, it's interesting. For the developer, it's going to be feel more limiting, but it makes it easier to run in many places. What about you, Joel? Where, you know, I think we've touched a little bit, but is there anything you want to add add to, to Danny's response? For us, the, the, the choice of Whittle more had to do in, in how it could be applied. And, and that gets to the, the Terra story. If it was a different workflow description language, uh, even though that is Whittle, if it, if it was any workflow management language, it, it, our choice was essentially driven by you know, the, the environment that we could run it in to assist public health. And then also quite often your choice of a path to, to go down is quite often by who you're collaborating with. And when Theogen Genomics started, one of our first partners was the Massachusetts Department of Health for their biomedics regional resource, where Danny and the Broad also had the, the workforce development work to do there. And we started interacting a lot. And that was the, the same time containers were blossoming and just starting to get to workflow description languages. And even though Whittle and, and Terra and all had been around for a while, sometimes you have to be ready to hear things, that there, there's a timing and a, and a ripeness to, to things happening. And, and that happened you know, probably in that summer of 2019 into the summer of 2020 in interacting with the, the Broad Institute, interacting with Danny and learning more about the way that they were performing their bioinformatics and then recognizing how that could be applied to public health. That's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank our guests, Joel and Danny, and we'll see you next time. Will you be able to join us in, in a couple of weeks? Absolutely. Sure thing. Really appreciate it. See you then. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.